All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. We have, for the past month and a half or so, as we're in between sermon series, we've been working our way through selected psalms. And this Sunday will be the last time that we're in a psalm. Next Sunday, we're going to do kind of some uh, commemorating and uh, going to talk about Jesus again, again next Sunday. And then when we move into the new building, our first Sunday will be kind of a gospel-oriented message. And then the week after that, we're going to begin our series through 1 Corinthians. And so I encourage you, if you're not already, to begin reading 1 Corinthians. It's 16 chapters in the New Testament, the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Stokesy. 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. Read 1 Corinthians. We'll be in it probably for six to seven months. Just work your way through that beautiful letter. We're going to work through it line by line over the fall and into the spring. But today we're going to be in Psalm 103, which is one of the most beautiful psalms. In fact, entire chapters in the entire Bible. It's one of those chapters or portions of Scripture that really almost needs no commentary. It is so rich and so deep, and so beautiful, and so profound, and so obviously on the surface, God-exalting, that we could almost just read it slowly, and sit quietly, and chew on it. But I'm a preacher, and so I'm going to give it some some thoughts, Uh, but we're going to read it in just a second, and then we're going to pray, and I'm going to work through it, and then as a church, we're going to receive communion together, which is our custom, the first Sunday of every month. And so this is something that Christians have been doing from the first century after Jesus' resurrection. They've been gathering together to remember his death on a cross and to examine their lives in light of it. For many Christians in this modern time, it has become sort of a rote tradition and it's totally lost its power because of the weakness of the preaching in that church. But here it is very important to us that we remember Jesus and what he did. And so this is for you if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not. This is a meal that Christians partake in regularly, depending on their tradition. We're going to do that today at the end of the message and respond through that communion and in song. But now we turn our attention to Psalm 103. And before I read it, let me just kind of give you a little bit of an orientation. My second youngest son, Jacob, who's nine years old, is playing football this year, and it is our first uh, entry into Columbus youth idolatry. I mean, sports. I'm sorry. And um, it has been a little comical uh, to watch some of these dads behind the fence as their little boys. I mean, there's little kids, five- and six-year-olds out there running around, not on Jake's team, but the other team. Uh, with these massive football helmets on their little tiny little bodies, and they can't even they can't even keep their heads up, and their dads are behind the fence yelling at them to stick their nose in there and hit somebody. And there's one father in particular in Jacob's team who is yelling at the dad of Jacob's coach, the, 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 the coach of Jacob's team, for a scrimmage because he felt like his son was being held by one of the uh, players on. The offensive line. I think maybe it was even Jacob, and so his son wasn't getting the opportunity to, you know, make the play in practice. 
Uh, I wanted to sort of let that dad know that I, I don't think Coach Saban is here today. He's got some other stuff he's dealing with. He's not scouting your kid. Just relax, Dad. But I, I noticed, kind of brought back memories of my youth and, you know, a little five, six, seven, eight, really even nine-year-old body, I don't think it's really quite strong enough yet to hold up a football helmet. And so the the weight of this helmet, most of the kids about halfway through practice are just kind of running around, you know, like little kids in Halloween costumes or something that just is just too big for them. And, and it, I started to think, you know, that's kind of how we are in life, really, oftentimes. Just the weight of the brokenness of this world, the weight of circumstances, the weight of our own self-absorption is heavy. And more often than not, it seems like it just sort of weighs our gaze down and we just end up kind of looking just a few inches in front of us rather than at the creator of all things who calls us to bless and adore and revel in his goodness. With that as a backdrop, we now come to Psalm 103, which I said is one of the most beautiful and God-exalting passages in the entire Bible. So let me read this this God-exalting passage, and then we'll work our way through it. And as I read, listen, we're reading the words of God here. I was reading about this famous Puritan preacher uh, recently, and he was converted as this pastor who was of no particular ability was just reading Ephesians 2. So as I'm reading this text, which is so God-exalting, let the power of the eternal Word of God stir our hearts to lift up our weak heads against the weight of our sin and self-absorption and see God in all His glory. So let's read Psalm 103. David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. 
he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, weighty words to be sure. Let's pray and ask God to stir our hearts for affection for Jesus. Lord, thank you for these words that you inspired David to write centuries ago. Lord, we need to do work to even get ourselves in the mindset that David was in. We, we need to shake off the, the selfishness and the self-absorption that plagues us. And Lord, we can only do this by the grace and the illumination of your Holy Spirit. So God, would you come now? I am particularly aware of my inability and the frailty of my words. And so, God, would you help us? Would you rouse our slumbering hearts for the Christians that are in this room, for those that have repented of their sin and turned in trust and faith towards Jesus' work on the cross? Lord, would you stir our affections for Jesus and what he has done? Because this psalm is as is the whole Bible and the whole Old Testament, is ultimately about what you have done on the cross in Christ for your glory and our joy. So God, would you cause us to see more than just sort of intangible philosophical ideas about the bigness of God, but would you zero our hearts in on the redemption that is in Christ and would you cause Christians in this room to... Not just see that as a regular, ordinary thing. Oh, it's the cross again. But God, would you stir our hearts for affection as we come around this table and think about it and remember and exalt and take joy in what Jesus has done for us. And God, for those that are in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, for those that think they have already believed in Him but not they truly have not, and for those who are aware that they are away from you, God, would you, would you bring life where there is death? Would you... Knock the calluses and the scales from their eyes, and would you let them see and savor Jesus? And I pray, God, that as we come around this table, we would all know and sense and see that surely God has spoken to us today, that we would leave this place worshiping you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I see four quick things in this psalm, and then we're going to receive communion together. There are many things, but for the sake of our meditation today i see four things the first is in the first five verses is that we should bless the lord because he redeems our lives from the pit he redeems our lives from 
the pit. You know, we tend to read the Bible. I want to encourage you to not read the Bible this way, but I think this is the default way that most of us read the Bible. We tend to read the Bible as sort of a duty book or a book of moral guides or principles. And so a lot of times we sort of instinctively come to it because we're, we're bent towards self-righteousness. We're bent towards trying to do something to make ourselves better. We come to the Bible with sort of a thought that, well, uh, this is going to tell me to do something. And we tend to read it with the question of what am I supposed to do. But, but really, and there is much in the Bible where it tells us what we should do, but really the question of the Scriptures is not what we should do, but what is our dilemma? What is the state of mankind? And then what has God done to solve that problem? And in these first five verses, David is writing, and the first thing that he remembers is God's salvation. And in his particular sense, he's remembering God's salvation of Israel from the hands of Egypt in the great exodus. And he's recounting that, and he's remembering God's salvation. But the whole Old Testament... In fact, the whole Bible is really just a shadow. It's pointing towards what God has done in Christ on the cross. And so when we read this as modern day readers, we should realize that our lives are, we start off in the pit. And the first thing that this psalm does is it reminds us that we should bless the Lord because he redeems our life from the pit. And now as Modern Americans, we have a lot of trouble with this because I think we tend to categorize salvation, at least radical salvation, for those that have some despicable past. But the core message of the Scriptures is that all of us are fallen. Some of us are fallen in blatant sin. Some of us are fallen fallen in proud self-righteousness. Whether our pit is some scandalous sin or scandalous self-righteousness, we all by nature and by choice, the scriptures are clear, are rebels against a holy and righteous and loving God. And we are in a pit. As we partake communion today, one of the things that I think American Christians in particular need to be reminded over and over and over again is that God has not just helped us live a more productive, pragmatic life. But if you are a Christian today, God has rescued you from a pit. Whether it is a pit of blatant sin or a pit of religious self-righteousness. And as we read this psalm and as we are reminded of that, we should bless the Lord. Point number one is that He redeems our lives from the pit. Point number two is found in verses 6 through 13, where David writes, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Verse 8, he says that the Lord is merciful and gracious. In verse 10, he says, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. And point number two that I see in this is that we should bless the Lord because He is merciful and gracious. We should... Bless the Lord because he is merciful and gracious. Go back to verse 6 there. David's writing and he says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Maybe it's just the way I'm made, but 
probably the question that I just wrestle with most in this world. I'm just, I kind of need to unearth this issue. And I think probably my lifelong theological pursuit is going to be spent on dwelling on and basking in the beauty and the mystery of this one question of God's goodness and sovereignty in the midst of evil and suffering. When you look at it philosophically, really, we're, we're left with kind of a paradox, at least from our perspective. And, and the paradox for us, from our perspective, not from God's, but from ours, is that if God truly is sovereign, and every Christian would say that God knows he's all-powerful, he's all-sovereign, he knows the future, at least most biblical Christians would, would certainly confess that and know that to be true, then why, why then the trouble? Why then evil? Why are his people? Why, why would Egypt, if God truly loves Israel, why would they even be in the place where they're in captivity in Egypt and need to be rescued. And if God loves us, why, why do things happen to us? Why, why are we oppressed? Why do we rebel against God still even after we're Christians? Why the trouble? Why the trouble? And, so it, we, and this is very simplistic. There's much more to it. But I think we're sort of left with two sort of arcs, two sort of philosophical camps. Now, there's a lot of variations between the two. Those two philosophical camps are that God is limited and the world is sort of made up of a dualism where good battles evil and God is you know kind of in this cosmic struggle with evil and they're basically sort of co-equal in power and thank God we know the end of the book and it seems like kind of in Revelation Jesus sort of like hits a free throw with one second left on the clock and we barely win that's kind of the dualistic view. It's kind of like there's this cosmic struggle and, and God sometimes has his hands tied. And he's sort, of, he's, he's sort of up there in heaven, sort of, you know, he loves me, he loves me not. Are they going to do it? Can I come through? Oh, no, the devil won on that one, oh, but I got him. I'm up on the scoreboard. It, that's kind of sort of the, the default mentality of many people. And I can understand why sometimes we think like that because oftentimes it seems like evil triumphs. At least in the temporary. We talked about that a couple weeks ago in Psalm 73. And is God enough? And the enemy seeming to conquer him. And so that one particular sort of philosophical default, which I think is the natural position of most people until they come to the illumination that comes by the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, correct biblical theology, default number one is that sort of there's this dualistic struggle against good and evil. And certainly there's a war and a struggle. But I think the biblical... And why this is more difficult and why it's harder for us and why oftentimes we default to dualism is because the more biblical and mysterious and harder to wrap our mind around actual position of the scriptures is, is that God is sovereign and good. That in a mysterious act of his providence, where God looks at eternity and knows the outcome of everything, every good and evil event, knows that ultimately He is superintending the history of the universe and your life and my life, if we are Christians, for our good and His glory, even as He is sovereign over the things that come into our life that are difficult and even struggles and seeming defeats in that perspective. That chewing on that particular truth and aspect of God's providence is a lifetime of praise-inspiring study and wonder. And I believe it's biblical. Will we have all the answers to it? No. But I think that's the biblical position. And 
David writes here. He doesn't struggle with this. He says, the Lord, you work righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God, in your sovereign goodness, you bring good and joy and glory out of oppression in the moment. That is a spectacular truth that should cause us all to bless the Lord. It should rouse us from slumber. It should wake our tired I was up last night watching the game hearts. It should. It should cause us to praise God. It should cause us to lean forward in the foxhole and, and give our lives in response to a God who, who superintends all things for His glory and our joy. That is amazing. Listen to this quote from, uh, well, I love the Puritans. I think you have probably gathered that by now. There was this Puritan named Richard Sibbs. In fact, I think Richard Sibbs uh, probably wrote the line that is, I believe, the most beautiful thing ever written outside of the scriptures. Not in this quote that I'll read, but Richard Sibbs wrote, he lived, he was a Puritan cat, he might have been Scottish, he lived in the late 1500s up to 1635, and he wrote, this is the most beautiful line, I'm going on a rabbit trail right now, but he said, he said regarding his own sin, he said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. There is more mercy in Christ then there is sin in me. Oh, Selah. I could chew on that all day long. But he wrote a book. He wrote many books. One of them was called The Bruised Reed. And uh, by the way, these are Puritan paperbacks. Uh, there's about 80 of them. They're books that were written by all these old guys back in the 1500s and 1600s. Don't read books about Christian actors or football coaches from the last 10 years. Don't just read those books about little weak, little American devotional stuff. Read the, the century-old wisdom of Dead dudes. Anyway, I mean, if a guy's dead, his book is probably a lot better. That's all I got to say. This is what he writes in his book called The Bruised Read. And that term, The Bruised Read, comes from uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, quoting Isaiah in 42, where Isaiah is saying prophetically about Jesus that of his ministry, he will have a ministry of compassion and love and gentleness on weak people like us. And he says, a bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering fire, uh, he will not quench. And so he's talking about in this whole book about how compassionate Jesus is with sinful, jacked up people like you and me. And this is what he writes about this providence of God and how God allows bruising of his people for their good. Listen to this. This is profound. We have it up on the screen. This bruising, meaning oppression, difficulty, trial. Name your, name your difficult circumstance. This bruising is required before conversion that so the Spirit may make way for Himself into the heart by leveling all proud high thoughts and that we may understand ourselves to be what indeed we are by nature, which is objects of wrath, sinners, rebels against God. We love to wander from ourselves and to be strangers at home till God bruises us by one cross or other and then we begin to think and come home to ourselves with the prodigal, as the prodigal son does, as, God, as the father let him go, ruin himself, and then turn around in Luke 15. It is a very hard thing to bring a dull and an evasive heart to cry with feeling for mercy. Listen to this line. Our hearts, like criminals, until they be beaten from all evasions, never cry for the mercy of the judge. Oh, oh. Contrast that with this junk, prosperity, easy believism that we shell out and call Christianity in America. (laughs) 
our hearts like criminals until they be beaten from all evasions. Never cry for the mercy of the judge. Again, this bruising makes us set a high price upon Christ. This bruising makes us set a high price. When we, when we face oppression, it, Christ becomes more magnificent to us, is what he's saying. Then the gospel becomes the gospel indeed. Then the fig leaves of morality will do us no good. And it makes us more thankful. And from thankfulness, more fruitful in our lives. For what makes many so cold and barren, but that bruising for sin never endeared God's grace to them. In other words, these hard-headed people, when God brings chastisement and difficulty their way so as to turn them, it never, they're so hard-headed that it doesn't soften them. And he continues, after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds, not oaks. Oof. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. See the beauty of what David is saying here and what Richard Sibbs is saying? And do you see what, what glory this affords us to turn our perspective from woe's me, why is everything falling around, around me, to see that even in our difficulty, God is merciful and Gracious, And then he continues, still under this point too, about merciful and gracious. He says here, I think it's one of the most beautiful lines again in the scripture, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Friends, that sentence is the heart of the gospel. Do you realize that that sentence, verse 10, is the heart of what God did in Christ on the cross for us? Very simply, the gospel is this. The gospel is that all of us are rebellious, as I mentioned before, whether in blatant sin or whether in self-righteousness, and we all stand opposed to God. God would be just and right to punish all of us, separate us forever from his presence. But in response to human rebellion, he sends Christ, the God-man, the perfect man, to live in our stead on this earth, and he lived the life that you and I should have lived. Hebrews 2:17 and Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. That he became like his brothers. That's you and me in every way. And he endured that temptation righteously and perfectly. And he accrued 33 years of perfection. Think about that. Now, Jesus resisted every temptation, whether internal or external. And he lived a perfect life. And he willingly laid down his life on a cross. And he became a substitute for us. He took our place. And the Bible uses this beautiful word. It's called, it's, this word is propitiation. It means that Jesus became the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of God. Easy for us to think about God's wrath being towards some blatant sinner or terrorist from the Middle East. But the wrath of God, all of us stand under that wrath. And Jesus For those that will repent and believe absorbs the wrath of my rebellion and your rebellion and the worst sinners in the world rebellion against him so that he satisfies God's justice, so that God God remains holy. And Jesus, he takes takes the punishment from our sin. That's what David is looking forward to as he writes, that God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, but he hasn't just let it go away. He deals with Christ on the cross for our sins, and now for those, and listen to me, 
only for those who will repent and believe, he takes their sin away. This isn't just a universal atonement. Everybody doesn't just get in because they're Americans or because they grew up in the South or because they live down the street from some church and their grandma you know, leads some prayer group. That doesn't, that's not the way it works. For those who repent and believe, this, friends, is the gospel, who turn from self-reliance, turn from their treasured sin, and turn towards faith in Christ. That is what the, the, the old historic reformers called justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. We don't trust on our works. We don't trust on our ability to, to make ourselves right with God. We trust solely on what God did on the cross in Christ as a righteous, satisfactory payment for our sins that then Christ has diverted into favor for all those who will trust in Him. So church attendance, giving to church, generosity, missions nice acts, all those things, although they may be helpful, they do not save us. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And friends, if you have not done that, I'm not, I don't care if you're, if you're a leader in this church or if you grew up or if your dad was a pastor or, if you're, or whatever. That, that means nothing when it comes to salvation. Salvation is simply this, that we trust in Christ alone. And as we trust in Christ, we are simultaneously not trusting in ourselves and we are repenting of our sins. And friends, you must do that today. You must do that today. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you have not done that, then Christ, God, the Father, will deal with you according to your sins. And what awaits you is an eternal separation from Him where Jesus describes in the New Testament is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is very unpopular in our culture to preach about hell because we're wimpy Americans and we just want to feel good. Tell me something. Like that song, tell me something good. Preacher, that's all we want on Sunday. Just tell me. Just help me. Help me, preacher. Pray for me. I got a tough meeting on Tuesday. I need happier thoughts. But we need to, Jude says that some need to be saved by fear. And so without a lot of emotion, just as simply as I can tell you right now, there, there are only two real possibilities eternally for every person in this room. Life eternal with God because of you have repented and believed in Jesus' sacrifice or eternal torment and separation from Him forever. My heart is that God would open up your heart if you're not yet a Christian. Or if you think you are, but you're not truly a Christian, cause you to turn and trust in Jesus. Point number one is that he redeems our life from the pit. Point number two is that he is merciful and gracious. Point three and four, we'll go quickly. Because of his eternal, point number three, because if we should bless God because of his eternal, everlasting love. David writes that we're like dust. Verse 15, we're, man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. We should bless the Lord because we are eternal beings. Man, we talk about this a lot here. We are not just living for these 70 or 80 years or how many ever God may give us. And we should bless God for those of us that have repented and trusted in Jesus that there awaits us joy unspeakable but because we're americans and because we're so prosperous we tend to just zero in on these 80 years and act like that's all we have but the biblical witness is is that he has stored up for his children 
joy and everlasting and eternal love. Listen to this scripture just to bring out a point. I want to go to 1 Corinthians. I've been reading 1 Corinthians a lot. So if you've got a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't want to give this away, but by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you will have long forgot this point. So I do not worry about sharing this point with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, that's why we preach through books of the Bible, because I'm not so presumptuous and arrogant to think that you'll remember any sermon, because my preaching is kind of weak on the grand scale of things. The Bible is strong. And I want you to remember, that's what Psalm 103 is about. I want you to remember what 1 Corinthians is about. But here's this point that Paul is making. Now, we're going to jump into a chapter on marriage. And the point I'm making is not about marriage. We're going to jump into a chapter where Paul's making a point about marriage. And then I want to let that point us towards a bigger idea of living not for this world, but for eternity. Okay, so let me read in 1 Corinthians 7. Remember, our point is, back to Psalm 103, our point is that we should bless God because of his eternal everlasting love that awaits every Christian who trusts in Christ. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Now I realize this is a hard left turn, but we're going to tie it around here in just a second. I have no command for the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. He's talking about marriage. Now don't get too caught up on this. We'll unpack this in a few months. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Praise the Lord. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Keep your sarcastic comments to yourself. Don't elbow your husband right now. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And then he, gets, then he blows up this point that he's making about marriage, which we'll handle in a couple months, to a much bigger point. And that's the point I wanted to draw out here in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives, listen to this, listen, contrast this reasoning we're about to unpack with the goofy little... This life is all we have, soulmate, self-absorbed silliness of our culture. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What Paul is saying there is there's this strange way that a Christian should live. We should, of course, give our whole heart to the advance of the gospel and living in this life and loving our wife and serving those around us. But yet there's this otherworldliness to a Christian. So that as he loves his wife and he loves his kids and as he does his best on the job, he's living in such a way that this world doesn't have its tentacles wrapped around him to where this is all there is. But he's living in such a way that he's living for eternity. So... So man, marry. Dude, love your wife. Let your marriage be a symbol of the gospel and have kids and get a job. And when you mourn, mourn, man, pour your heart out. And when you rejoice, party like it's 
<laughs> He's about to drop into an old Prince song. Terrible. Party, man. Party, party. Eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy. And, and when you, like we talked about last week, when you bake that ziti, man, enjoy it and, and, and drink your wine and, and, and enjoy the feast and, and rejoice and live in this world and be in the moment, but, but do it in such a way that, that it points you to eternity so that this world doesn't have you sucked into its temporal 80 years. Live in a way that it points you so that you mourn and you weep and you work and you marry. As if this world was passing away because it is. Because it is. And we can bless the Lord today, friends, because, oh, thank God these 80 years or these 40 years or these 20 years or whatever we have left are not all there is to it. That should stir our hearts for affection for Jesus and longing for eternity. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Point number one is that He redeems our lives from the pit. Point number two is that He's merciful and gracious. Point number three is we can bless Him because of His eternal everlasting love. And finally, quickly, we can bless Him because He rules over all. Verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens. And His kingdom rules over all. Oh, we could spend a long time on this point, but I don't think I could do any better than my theological and pastoral hero, Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon has done thinking about this concept of God's rule over everything. He was a Baptist pastor in London back in the 1800s. You know him well. If you've been around here, you know that I read a lot of his stuff and I read quotes from him. And I have a quote from him. This is a lengthy quote. And by this, I'm not giving praise to Spurgeon, his words. I'm giving praise to the God who worked through Spurgeon to write such a beautiful thing, which of course is not Scripture, but it points us to Christ. And in a sermon back in 1864, thinking about the rule and reign of God over everything, Spurgeon wrote these words. It's a lengthy quote. We're not going to have it on the screen because it's so long. So just, if you would, sit back and listen. And after that, after I read this, I'll pray and we'll receive communion. This is what Spurgeon writes as he praises the divine architect, God. He says, meditate, my dear friends. Upon the whole range of God's works in creation and providence, there was a period when God dwelt alone and creatures were not. In that time before all time, when there was no day but the ancient of days, when matter and created mind were alike unborn, and even space was not, God, the great I Am, was as perfect, glorious, and blessed as He is now. There was no sun, and yet Jehovah dwelt in light ineffable. There was no earth, and yet his throne stood fast and firm. There were no heavens, and yet his glory was unbounded. God inhabited eternity in the infinite majesty and happiness of his self-contained greatness. If the Lord, thus abiding in awful solitude, should choose to create anything, the first thought and idea must come of him, for there was no other to think or suggest 
All things must be of him in design. With whom can he take counsel? Who shall instruct him? There existed not another to come into the council chamber, even if such an assistance could be supposable with the Most High. In the beginning of his way, before his works of old, eternal wisdom brought forth from its own mind the perfect plan of future creations. And every line and mark therein must clearly have been of the Lord alone. Listen to this. He ordained the pathway of every planet and the abode of every fixed star. He poured forth the sweet... Oh, I love this language. This is so English. He poured forth the sweet influences of the Pallades. It's a constellation. I think it's the, we call it the Seven Sisters. And girt Orion with his bands. He appointed the bounds of the sea and settled the course of the winds. As to the earth, the Lord alone planned its foundations and stretched his line upon it. He formed in his own mind the mold of all his creatures and found for them a dwelling and a service. He appointed the degree of strength with which each he would endure each creature. So that means, young man, if you can't bench 200 pounds, God made you that way. Praise the Lord. He settled its months of life. It's hour of death. It's coming and it's going. Divine wisdom mapped this earth. It's flowing rivers and foaming seas, the towering mountains and the laughing valleys. The divine architect fixed the gates of the morning, the doors, the shadow of death. Nothing could have been suggested by any other, for there was no other to suggest. It was in his power to have made a universe very different from this, if he had so pleased. And that he has made it what it is must have been merely because in his wisdom and prudence he saw fit to do so. There cannot be any reason why he should not have created a world from which sin should have been forever excluded. And that he suffered sin to enter into his creation must again be ascribed to his own infinite sovereignty. Had he not well known that he would be master over sin and out of evil evolved the noblest display of his own glory, had he not permitted it to enter into the world? But in sketching the whole history of the universe which he was about to create, he permitted even that black spot to defile his work because he foreknew what songs of everlasting triumph would rise to himself when in streams of his own blood incarnate deity should wash out the stain. Cannot be doubted. Finally, that whatever may be the whole drama of history and creation and providence, there is a high, mysterious sense in which it is all of God. Oh, no, no. The sin and the guilt is not God's. But the temporary permission of its existence formed part of the foreknown scheme. And to our faith, the intervention of moral evil 
and the purity of the divine character do neither of them diminish the force of our belief that the whole scope of history is of God in the fullest. Friends, apart from Scripture, that is one of the most beautiful explanations of the goodness of God and how He sovereignly rules over all things, evil included, for His glory and the joy of His people. Now brings us to the Lord's table where we remember that the most evil act and most blatant sin of all time, the crucifixion of God himself on the cross, and the grand grace and plan of God, he turned about for the salvation of people like you and me, for all those who would repent and believe. The greatest evil turned into the greatest triumph of all. God rules over all. So before we partake of this supper together, have you repented and trusted in Jesus? Have you turned from self-righteousness and cherished idolatry and sin? Have you repented? Have you trusted in what God did in Christ alone on the cross? If not, do that right now, friends. Turn and see Jesus. Trust in him. Place the weight of your life. Saving faith is not just cognitive agreement with the story of the gospel. It is putting the weight of your life, your hope. It is treasuring Christ alone. You can do that right now. And if you do that right now, then you are welcome with this family to receive this meal. Christian, You need to lift up your head from the heavy helmet of life. You need to have God by the strength of His Holy Spirit underneath that helmet. Lift up your gaze so that along with David the psalmist, you would be able to say, Bless the Lord because He redeems my life from the pit. Bless the Lord because He's merciful and gracious. Bless the Lord because He is eternal and everlasting in his love and bless the Lord as he rules over all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words in this song. As we prepare now to receive, would you stir our affections? Would you cause people to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? And as we receive this bread and this juice, would you let us... Approach this table with great humility, great praise. In Jesus' name, amen.